This is the Resilient Disciples Podcast, powered by Awana. I'm your host, Ross Cochran. Thank you for listening. I am so glad that you are here today because today I'm going to bring you a conversation between Matt Markins and John Tyson. Matt serves as the president and CEO at Awana, and John Tyson is a pastor in New York City. What you're going to hear is Matt and John talking after an event that John was speaking at that Awana held. But what I want you to pay attention to is the clarity that John Tyson communicates, not only the importance of the mission of child discipleship, but how critical it is that we, as loving, caring adults, meet this cultural moment for the sake of our kids and for the sake of the future of the faith. This conversation starts with Matt Markins referencing a quote that you may have heard of. Thank you for listening. This is the Resilient Disciples Podcast. So you've heard the quote, you know, it's, it's not a matter of are our children being formed. It's a matter of who or what is forming or discipling our children. Unpack that a little bit. Well, you could basically reverse engineer um, traditional Christian values and say the opposite is what is happening. So they're being discipled from faith into doubt. They're being discipled from uh, morality into moral confusion. They're being discipled. You could just go down the list. I mean, so it's basically we're at, we're at a point. Uh, Philip Reef, uh, who we talked about earlier today, uh, basically says he talks about what culture is, and then he talks about the idea of anti-culture. And he says anti-culture is the hunting down and annihilation of any settled convictions. And so, what we're we're in a moment right now where anybody who believes anything that represents any sort of traditional Judeo-Christian framework. That that's being sniffed out and deconstructed and seen as a tool of oppression. And uh, so, yeah, the culture for the most part is making sure that faith is primarily private, personal, and individual, does not manifest itself in any public expression. You can believe what you want in your heart, just don't bring it into your education, just don't bring it into your workplace. And now we have HR screening it out to make sure. We've got boards at school screening it out to make sure that it's there. So yeah, it's a it's sort of what we mentioned earlier what Charles Taylor talked about, which is uh, the imminent frame where society is saying, "Get out, God." So like Jesus walked around casting out demons, society is walking around casting God out wherever He is found. And so you know, I think kids are growing up in a world where faith, yeah, seems private. Uh, it feels like it's full of problems. It's, it's hard to believe, and much of what they feel they hold with a sense of shame because it's looked down on the culture. I think one thing that's been helpful for our organization over the last year or two is just all of the studying and the research and the reading to understand what's gone into shaping the modern self, the modern view mm-hmm. of self. Uh, you just gave a 45-minute talk on that at a, at a conference we're having right here uh, today, actually. So talk to us in a condensed version of the modern self. How would you describe, like, what's happened over the course of the last couple hundred years that helps us view self in the way that we do? Oh, gosh, that is such a meta question. Um, (laughs) I want to just refer people to the book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self by Carl Truman for the proper uh, full study. Is that a mic drop? Yeah. That's, I mean, that that might be a mic drop. That's all the deep info. I mean, basically what's happened is we're living in an age of the sovereignty of self. That's the best way to summarize it. We are now putting individuals uh, at the center of the universe and we're making everything rotate around them. There's no 
uh, sort of shared cultural values that the self has to submit itself to. It only exists for pleasure, only exists for self-expression. And uh, the result of that is basically the destabilization of culture as we as known as every individual is sovereign and gets to exert their sovereign will into the world. There's obviously going to be thousands and thousands of points of conflict. So anytime something gets in the way, uh, we, we deem like we have to get rid of it. So, uh, I mean, uh, Robert Mulholland Jr. has a wonderful book called The Deeper Journey, and his whole book is on the true self versus the false self. And he talks about the false self as a self-referential system. That's the essence of the modern self, self-referential as opposed to God-referential. And we know, according to Romans 1, the beginning of all idolatry is not acknowledging God or being grateful for your life. Mm-hmm. And so when you're entitled and self-defined, it's fundamentally an idolatrous self so that produces a lot of damage, a lot of fragility, a lot of instability, and it's leading us to the highest rates of anxiety that we've ever witnessed. So Francis Schaeffer was talking about post-Christian culture a long, long time ago. Uh, we talk a lot and read a lot about post-Christian culture and secularism. You, you actually said recently that you think we're in the West, especially in the United States, we're actually living in an anti-Christian environment. Talk about that. Certainly in some parts of the U.S., yeah. definitely which is Christian. I remember uh, Tim Keller saying this when I first moved to New York. He said, Christianity used to be seen as weird, you know, sort of like, oh, you Christians with your, like, your, your morals and your kindness and your, the, you know, your enemy <laughs> love. But now Christianity is seen as a threat. Yeah. And, and the difference between post-Christian culture, which means we're over it, it's no longer an organizing principle, an anti-Christian culture is it says we've tried that and it was bad for us, so we must be opposed to it. Mm-hmm. And in the categories that Christians have traditionally exerted influence, um, those things are definitely seen as bad, particularly the area of morality. Now, Christians have made some terrible mistakes and we do deserve some blame for some of the positions that we, we have in our world. But for the most part, um, it is, we're beyond and against what Christianity has to offer a society. It's seen as divisive, it's seen as intrusive, it's seen as oppressive, it's seen as irrelevant, it's seen as anti-scientific, it's seen as homophobic, it's seen as racist, it's seen as, uh, you know, a whole series of negative things. So what about the children's ministry leader who says, I hear you, but man, I just don't know that our kids are facing some of the issues you're talking about. Talk about that. Unless you're that kid's teacher, you're probably wrong. I mean, it's the, 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 the way that things are getting into the educational system today around the world is like we are, we are for the most part doing indoctrination we're not doing education now i, I want to be very careful here there's some wonderful godly teachers out there they are doing this with a vision yeah. to love serve and educate so love you. i'm not talking about them as such i'm talking about radical activists getting into the system with a conscious vision to win the minds of kids at younger and younger ages so it's very very hard now the the conversations are happening at a younger and younger age, things are being said in kindergarten that never would have been said in high school 20 years ago. So I would say uh, it's more real than you think. It's more subtle and it's it's ubiquitous everywhere you look. This agenda, whether it's games, whether it's Disney cartoons, whether it is... Global technology. Yeah, everyth- yeah, everything. Like you yeah. can't put up enough fences to sort of protect your kids. So therefore they will face this. Yeah. So we see a little bit of a, a, a recipe for... Uh, a challenge at a minimum, disaster perhaps. Uh, on the one hand, we've got this culture of increased isolation. Mm-hmm. 
Then we have this uh, environment that you've just described, uh, highly secularized, even aggressive, against, hostile against the Christian faith at times. Uh, so so we, we see an increased need for Christ followers, for those who can influence children to be advocates for Christ with children and translators, help kids understand like what is happening in the spirit of the air, the water they're, we're swimming in, uh, and what Jesus is calling us to. Talk about the need for advocates and translators that children have in this world. Yeah, well, one of the major ways that kids learn is by observing adult behavior. I mean, they're establishing their sense of norms and values by seeing what's emphasized, rewarded, punished, those sorts of things. And they're desperate for attention and affirmation. And so whatever gets affirmation, I think, shows up. So when you've got – and by the way, I want to just, just to sort of note here, I would say these are tremendously exciting times to be working with kids. I mean, this is like an amazing moment in history. So even though I think we we are living in a time of real decline, culture uh, Christianity is despised, there's real resistance. I, I don't have like a, a self-preservation and fear orientation around this. I have an opportunity and a biblical responsibility. That's, good. That's it. That's good. So if you run around like with a deep sense of fear and like all you're going to do is create anxiety in your kids, but it'll be a Christian anxiety about how bad the world is in the same way the world's producing anxiety in in uh, non-Christian kids with other issues. So it's about confidence. It's about showing them how to follow Jesus. My conviction is that God made the world and he knows the best way to live in the world. It will lead to blessing life, uh, joy, deep sense of meaning. And so when parents model that to kids, I follow Jesus because this is the best way to live. It makes sense of my deepest desires. It makes sense of how to treat other people in a way that makes society work. It makes sense of our religious instincts. I mean, to modeling that with a deep sense of joy. And uh, I, th- I think that is the way the way to do it. So when you get parents who are doing this in a godly way, it's not cheap moralism where it's like, be good because you know you should, or I'm embarrassed of you because that's not going to help. And um, sort of trite, um, generic moralism is not going to work either, which is be nice, be happy, yeah. be kind. Um, you've got to have something that is rooted in the person of Jesus and showing why Jesus himself is the way to life. He's the relationship you ache for. He's the fulfillment you long for. He's the hope your heart, you know, rooting it all in Jesus is, uh, I think, the most potent way. Thanks for listening. We'll be right back. Our kids are growing up in a digital Babylon. With access to excess as we grapple with the changing dynamics of our post-Christian culture. The need to move to the timeless practice of child discipleship is more critical than ever. Therefore, the Awana team is excited to invite you to the second annual Child Discipleship Forum, September 22nd and 23rd in Nashville, Tennessee, or online. At the 2022 Awana Child Discipleship Forum, you'll hear from leading voices on culture, children, and local church ministry. Our incredible lineup of speakers includes John Mark Comer of Practicing the Way, Trillia Newbell of Moody Publishers, David Kinneman of Barna Group, and many, many more. This year, you'll learn from surprising results unveiled by Barna Group and Awana with new practical research to help you disciple kids in a changing culture. Whether you join in person or online, you'll experience community and belonging as you connect with like-minded leaders in this critical conversation as we discuss, pray, and pursue more robust and purposeful child discipleship in our churches and homes. 
Register by March 31st to take advantage of the lowest prices available for the forum. Sign up today at childdiscipleshipforum.com. So we're, we're going to ask for your practical advice in two areas, church and home. So what would you say to the children's ministry leader who, who just simply says, I need volunteers? Like it takes people to, uh, to reach a disciple and teach these children in our church. Let's say we've got 100, 100 children and eight volunteers. Like what do you say to that leader who has to talk to their pastor? How do you encourage that leader? Um, I think I would I, I would get away from the, the the space crisis, the volunteer crisis, and I would get back to why. You're rarely going to move a senior pastor's heart without talking about the why. And um, so yeah, I would I would get back to the fundamentals. I would cast vision. I would try and t- tell stories of of amazing transformation. You know, I mean, it was mentioned today. Kids get their their worldview primarily by thirteen. So like the amount of the amount of upstream joy you get mm. pastors are basically doing ministry and most pastoral ministry is like recovering from failed kids ministry yeah. they're like they're back there trying to catch up on what didn't happen this is a chance to like shift things radically yeah. in a few years so yeah i would start with why and um and i would try not to i would try not to um get self-righteous i've i've always noticed that um anytime you think your thing's the most important thing you can be self-righteous in your tone it's like, look, ministry is hard. You run a team. Appreciate that with everybody, but advocate for where you are. So before we leave that one, uh, wh- what we've noticed down through the years is when we when we get loving, caring adults engaging with children in children's ministry, they end up getting discipled. They're through through working through that curriculum and through that engagement with those children. They're getting a discipleship experience that's probably more rich. And what they were getting prior to that level of engagement. Oh, oh no, no, I, I totally agree. I mean, I, I, I tell people, when you're mentoring, the gaps in your, your own formation will be filled. Mm. Like you're going to revisit this stuff and you're going to get stuff out of it you didn't the first time. You're going to be forced because of the issues we're in in our world right now to address things that you probably didn't have addressed that you wonder about. So yeah, you always learn a lot more for sure. So the practical piece toward the home. So let's say you're talking to a family or a group of families that, that say, okay, we're tracking. We know we need to do something. What do we do? Well, I mean, it, I mean, that's such a meta question. The answer is do something. Okay. And do something consistently and do something that is life giving, you know? So, I mean, do what works for your family, for the kids, for the age and stage that you are. But I'm a big believer, build that family older, have a time and a place where uh, the gospel is taught to your kids, have a place uh where they're free to talk and ask questions without any shame, no questions off the limits here. You want Love them that. bringing you Love your that. struggles, doubts, questions. And uh, and then you want to be able to worship. I think there's so much power in worshiping. A lot of people are just doing Bible dumping. I love God's word. But when you worship, something is released in your heart towards God. And uh, C.S. Lewis said it's in the process of being worshipped that God communicates his presence to men. And so teaching your kids how to engage not just the word of God, but the word of God is a portal into the presence of God. Mm. So have a space in your home where that happens. And again, I would say make it fun. Yeah. Go with, do what your kids can have. Push them right to the limit of where they can handle and not handle. And don't do too much where they, they're overwhelmed. And don't make it so light with like, we please get through this? This is boring. There's nothing there. Yeah. Only you as a parent know that thing in your kids' hearts. I love this. So many of our listeners are uber practical. I just heard you say dialogue and conversation, reading the scriptures, worshiping. 
just having that space for questions. Yes. Ask anything you want. And if I was a parent, I would like try and raise the hardest questions. Mm. You know what I mean? Don't wait for your kids to bring them to you. Voluntarily bring them up. We're going to have an amazing discussion tonight and watch them have to wrestle for the answer themselves. I think that to me is a huge, uh, a huge gift we give our kids. Okay. So let's end with this. Uh, You shared uh, recently this frame, the biblical framework, the paradigm from Josiah to Daniel. Yes. So we're nearing the end of our podcast here. Give us the condensed version. We got to hear this. I think we've one of the thoughts a lot of people are wrestling with is how did Daniel become Daniel? How do you how do you take a group of teenagers, pull them out of their environment? and then send them into exile, into the center of power. You think about how coercive that environment would be being brought into the inner court of one of the most powerful men in the world to be trained to serve him. Most kids are just going to fold up and go with it, and yet he navigates it with a kind of like relational, interpersonal skill that's incredible. Uh, they, they have convictions. Uh, like we just won't worship. Hey, we'll go along with as much that we can, but when it comes to compromise and the like, we believe God can save us, and if He doesn't, we'll die. He's worth it. Daniel later in his life, willing to get thrown into the the lion's den, something happens in him. It's, how were these kids formed? And then he asked the question, like, can we form them again? They're like, who discipled them? That's what I want to know. They did a good job. Well, if you go back chronologically and you look at the life of Josiah 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 was like a one man move of God hasn't seen in almost a hundred years has no reference point in his recent history of how to follow God how to seek God he's living in a time where they haven't celebrated properly for 400 years the truths of the gospel uh, the truths of the redemptive calendar uh, they've lost a copy of the scriptures they're deeply concerned and yet this one man just goes on a on a wrecking ball of reformation and revival tears down the idols destroys the high places, uh, repairs the temple, recovers the word of God, responds in radical repentance to it. He basically just does in one lifetime what all the kings before him had failed to do in their all their lifetimes combined. Yes. It's so effective that God pays attention and says, no one turned to the Lord with all their heart like Josiah. His wow. repentance, his hunger did something. It got the attention of heaven, but then God is so pleased. His reformation and repentance is so effective that it it almost bends time or it God weaves it into his divine plan somehow, which is just an extraordinary thought. And he basically says, judgment is coming. I, like I can't stop it because the decline is too great, but it will not, you won't witness this mm-hmm. in your eyes, mm-hmm. in your lifetime. So a window is created through his repentance. And that window was wholehearted devotion, recovery of the word of God, love for worship, yeah. no idolatry, fierce loyalty to the covenant and to Yahweh. And then who gets sent into exile? Yeah. What's these kids? Well, where were these kids formed? These kids were formed in the culture that Josiah created. And that culture enabled them to prosper in exile. And I was like, gosh, is there anything we can do? We all want these kinds of disciples, but are we willing to live with such radical devotion, repentance, wholeheartedness that it creates a portal or a window where kids grow up and they are relationally skilled in the midst of compromise? They, they're loyal to God no matter what it costs them. Deep in their heart, that they have a deep connection. And that work was so deep in their spirits that we read at the end of the book of Daniel, 70 years 
almost 70 years, he's been in exile, and it says this, at the hour of evening sacrifice. That's when the angel appeared to him. So he is still, after all of this time, ordering his internal world by Jerusalem time and not by Babylonian or Persian time. Something formed in him that lasted him through empires in exile, and he was still turning his heart to God. So to me, creating those portals of possibility, you can do it in a family. You've seen families produce extraordinary kids. You've seen certain youth groups, certain ministries, certain communities disproportionately produce these kinds of kids. And I would just say, resolve in your heart. I will respond like Josiah to create an environment that makes it possible for the kids who come out of this environment to thrive in the culture that they're going into. And if we do that, who knows how God will use these kids. That is our mic drop. John, <laughs> good to be with you. Great to chat, man. The Resilient Disciples Podcast is powered by Awana. Thanks to the donations of generous folks like you, Awana partners with 62,000 churches in 130 countries to make resilient disciples. When you give to Awana, you are investing in lasting faith, young people who will engage the culture with the gospel and fearlessly lead the church into the future. To make a donation to this mission, go to awana.org slash lasting faith today. Subscribe to the podcast today so you never miss an episode and check out the show notes of today's episode for relevant links from this conversation. The podcast is mixed, edited, produced, and hosted by me, Ross Cochran. Our theme song is Fresh Air by Christian hip-hop artist Josiah Williams and hits by Jude. You also heard I'll Let Go, provided by Josiah Williams from his album Rerouting 2. Thank you for listening. We'll talk to you next week. <laughs>